please stand as we hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming to the world. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you here today. Have you ever asked yourself the question why Jesus didn't come now? I mean, look at all that's happened in terms of communication in the past 20 years. The internet would have provided a much greater reach Satellite communication and the 24-hour news cycle would have provided immediate live coverage of every miracle. He could have hired the marketing team from Coke and mobilized his army of followers on Twitter. Jesus could have had a profound impact if he had come now. So why? Paul in the book of Galatians tells us that Jesus came in the fullness of time. That's the same kind of feeling as when a, a birth is about to happen. The fullness, it's ready. And there's some reasons why scholars think that is true. The first is uh, the Greek language. You know, Alexander the Great conquers most of the known world and, and spreads that language. So there is a, a common tongue throughout most of the West uh, when, during the first century. On the other hand, the Roman peace or... Roman Empire domination, however you want to think about that, created a, a lot of security for people to travel, and the Roman roads really helped with that too. And maybe most importantly, Jesus came at the time he did because of the looming destruction of Jerusalem uh, and the temple in AD 70. Israel would not be a recognizable nation for nearly 2,000 years. So if we struggle with asking the question, why didn't Jesus choose now to come? Because of all the benefits, of all the reach and communication, maybe we're missing the core of Jesus' message and what it means when Jesus begins his ministry. Namely, that Jesus is local. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, good and gracious God, during this season of Advent, we welcome your Son. 
as he was as a baby 2,000 years ago, as he exists as King and Lord in our hearts now, as we look forward to his second coming, his second advent when he will bring us his kingdom all around. And Father, we pray for uh, this world and everything in it. We pray for your goodness to, to reign, to rule. And now, Father, as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I may speak your truth and love to these your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. John kind of has an odd, even confusing infancy story. It's, there's no Jesus in a manger. There's no donkeys and shepherds. There's no wise men. I mean, if you read the, the book of Matthew, the, the, the story is full of scandal and sadness. Rachel is weeping for her children in Matthew chapter 2. Luke, on the other hand, is a musical. It's full-blown with all sorts of angels singing, and, and Mary has a song too. But that's not the way John starts. John starts at the beginning. Not just the beginning of John or Jesus' life or Jesus as a child, but the beginning of time. John is uniquely concerned about theology, about us understanding who Jesus is. And in there, there is a mystery. Jesus is the logos, the incarnation. I hope that you notice we left one of the words in the text untranslated, the word logos, which in English is best translated as word, but there's a lot of pent-up energy in that word logos. Logos tends to jump out of your dictionary and just kind of jitter along your bookshelf. It doesn't fit well into those definitions of, of words, and it, it, it just it won't stay put in the dictionary where you want to put it. it it's words like grace, God, and hope. For, for the Jew in Hebrew, the word word is dabar. And it has its roots in the sense of action. Words are, are things that do. In the creation story, God speaks words and the universe happens. It brings up images of God as creator. For the Greek, logos has its roots in reason and wisdom. The English word for logic comes from the Greek word logos. Logos is the order of the universe, the natural laws of creation, the evidence of intention behind every living thing. And so John takes both of the meanings of those words and kind of puts them together. And, and as he does that, he's getting close to the reality of God, but it is still incomplete. Everything in this passage turns on the phrase, the word, the logos, became flesh and made his dwelling. It's literally pitched his tent among us. God became human. All of the power and beauty and elegance and glory is squeezed into this tiny baby in Bethlehem. A baby that is going to save the world. But perhaps the most important thing about the incarnation is that Jesus is the best thing in the universe if we want to understand who God is. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God sounds like, listen to Jesus. If you want to know how God acts, watch Jesus. This is God's word 
in action. The other aspect of the incarnation is that the thing that God chooses to express his own identity most completely in the cosmos is local. It's as if God pulled up his U-Haul van and parked it uh, down the street and moved into the neighborhood. And when we hear that God pitches his tent, we also are reminded of another tent that God dwelled in, the tent in the desert where God's presence was seen night and day. Jesus wasn't everywhere at once, and he wasn't every when. He lived in one place at one time. Jesus' ministry is fundamentally local. One of my favorite authors was on the radio a while back, and he said something profound. Wendell Berry is an essayist and a a poet, and he, and he spent most of his life in Kentucky uh, working and living on the farm that his father owned and his grandfather owned and his great-grandfather owned. And he has this perspective on life that is uh, very different than uh, the culture around him. He has this rhythm and these values that, that are, are very strange to contemporary America. And he, he shares a voice that is almost gone in our modern world of efficiency and technology. In a world where Amazon can give you a package in just one day, and some of that stuff they can get you in two hours, Wendell Berry offers a a, a beautiful response. After all, what happens in that warehouse to those workers to get you that package that fast? One of the stories I love about Wendell Berry is he lived in the same place his whole life, and he remembers as a kid there was this metal pail that was nailed up against a fence post. And he remembers in particular because when he was a kid, some of the people that were working on the farm tried to cook eggs in this pail, and for whatever reason, they came out black. And nobody wanted to eat the eggs except for this one guy that ate all the black eggs, and that was weird. Well, it was like 30 years later that he was walking on his land that he came across that same pail nailed to that same post. And he looked inside and he saw something phenomenal. Leaves and dirt and things had blown into that pail over time. It had created soil. That soil had created life. There was like a little ecosystem growing in the bottom of that pail. And it wouldn't have happened if that pail hadn't been there nailed to that post for 30 years. The only way that that life happened in that spot was time and patience and locality. Wendell Berry was talking about what it means to live in one place like that and and to invest themselves in one community. And he noted that familiarity breeds affection and everything turns on affection. Familiarity breeds affection. It breeds love, and everything turns on affection. How does affection work, and and how does it grow? Wendell Berry is is a farmer, and what he was trying to say is the only way that you will work to ecologically sustain and protect your land is if you care deeply for it beyond just what it can do for you, profit it can make, or value it can add. You have to love the thing itself. 
I think for me, in, in, in my world, this became true when I, I began my first ministry position as a campus minister in Arkansas. And Arkansas was a very different culture than the one that I grew up in in Denver. Uh, there's a lot of hunting and fishing in Arkansas. I have found that people in Arkansas care more about the environment than people in California, especially Northern California. People in Arkansas care about it because that's where they hunt and that's where they fish. They want to protect those things because they know the value of it. It's fascinating to me. But I didn't grow up in that kind of hunting, fishing culture. I've never owned a piece of camouflage. And, and if you've seen Duck Dynasty, you know that camouflage is more than just a means to an end. It is a way of life. And these Arkansas kids, they grew up, and there's no major sports teams. There's no professional sports in Arkansas. And so they loved college football, and I was never really into that. And so there was some distance between these guys and I. And uh, the other thing is that they were college guys, and, and they do very typical things that the rest of us would call, at best, ill-advised. Like the time they took an entire bucket of tennis balls and one by one they threw them up into the insulation of our gymnasium there. And you kind of want to ask why. Or that time at 2 a.m. when I got a phone call from one of them saying, hey, can you come down to the church? We set off the fire alarm. And I said, is there a fire? They said, no, we were throwing a football at the fire alarm to see who could get the closest without hitting it. And it's easy to look back at that situation and think, I'm going to murder those guys. <laughs> They're going to drive me crazy. But, but that's not what happened. I fell in love with those men. After I left the, the ministry and, and moved on, I came back a half dozen times to officiate their weddings. Affection, familiarity breeds affection, and everything turns on affection. My wife and her work as a social worker in California at a hospital would receive all sorts of phone calls and emails from people that were very angry. They were frustrated by the system that they found themselves trapped in. They couldn't get the resources or the information that they needed, and so they were reaching out, and sometimes they were lashing out. And, but Natalie noticed in her work that there were times when she would go to visit the hospital room and sit to somebody, talk to somebody sitting in the hospital bed. She had a very different experience with them than she did when they would call or text or email her. Because it was something about sitting in that room where you could see the pain that the other person was in. You could see the worry that they were having that this was going to cost way too much. It was going to bankrupt their family. You could see how scared they were about what the future was going to look like. And because of that face-to-face -face presence, the, the venom and the irateness, it wasn't quite as bad. It was something that you could deal with. Because familiarity, presence breeds affection, and everything can turn on affection. At the church I grew up with, we had this song leader who led songs in the same way that a baseball player gets ready to bat. You know what I mean? He, he had this rhythm. It was the same time every time he was going to lead a song. He would say, 708, 
7.08. I remember this like it was yesterday. 7.08. Do you all have it? Let us sing. And then Brother Anthony would begin singing the song. Every time it was the same thing. And he led every song at about like 80 beats per minute. It didn't matter what song it was. It was going to be a ballad. I was talking to Gus uh, White, who's my, my preacher when I was growing up. He attends here now. And he reminded me that, that Brother Anthony, it didn't matter what the worship team uh, planning committee recommended for songs. Brother Anthony had about 15 songs, and he was just going to do one of his. Every week. Here's the songs we'd like you to sing. That's fine. I'll do these. Every time. And you would think to yourself that that might be a little bit frustrating or irritating to a church. Or might get a little annoying. But it was just the opposite. It, one of my friends who was Brother Anthony's son, Langston, we had one of the, like, let the kids lead uh, Sundays, and he got up to lead. And, and you know what he said? He said, let us stand, let us sing. And the entire congregation burst into applause. <laughs> because familiarity breeds affection. And everything turns on affection. Jesus is local. And when you learn to love the place that you're at, the place that you're in, it can change everything. As I was preparing this sermon, I was getting ready to talk about all of the hustle and bustle of, of Christmas, how it adds so much extra stress to all, your, to all of our lives and how we have to deal with the, the terrible traffic. But we live in Abilene. We don't have any traffic. This is amazing. I can get anywhere and I want in this city in like 10 minutes. It's incredible. Some of you that just got back from Dallas, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That place is terrible. It's because we learn to love the place that we're at. And we learn to love the people that are there. Jesus is local. I am suspicious of people that say they love humanity. Love your neighbor first. And if you can learn to love your neighbor, if you can imagine the way that they live, the person right next door to you, and you can do the hard work and effort of what it means to love them, then maybe we've got a chance. Because imagination breeds sympathy, and sympathy breeds affection. I also have this sinking suspicion that our enemies are local, too. It's difficult for me to imagine that Hassan Rouhani or Kim Jong-un or, or Xi Jinping is really my personal enemy. I don't really know them, and they don't know me. And as great as it would be for Jesus to have two billion Twitter follows, Jesus is looking for disciples. And as great as it would be for Jesus to have just as many Facebook friends, he's looking for people who are willing to be incarnational to this world. You don't have to worry about the world. God has got that taken care of. So this Advent season, let's work on, let's love the person next door. That's how we share about the light that is coming. It's how we talk about the light that's in our, in our lives. There's a curious thing about light. Light is kind of like a wave, but it's kind of like a particle. It functions in both ways. It's different than sound. 
Sound has to have a medium or it doesn't exist. If sound doesn't have ground or water or air to travel through, it doesn't really exist. And because it has to travel through those mediums, eventually it dissipates. That's why we can't hear things that are far away. But light, if it exists in a vacuum, it will not stop. It goes on forever. That's a beautiful thing, a curious thing about light. And if you have a big enough source like a galaxy, it can be seen for more than a billion light years away. If you go outside tonight and look up at the stars, light that is over a million years old is striking the back of your eyeballs. And in that moment, you get to experience it and it's just yours. But the other thing that's true about light is you don't know it's there unless something's in the way. Like I can turn on this light on my phone and it's hitting the ceiling right now. But you can't tell. It's not just hitting the ceiling, it's, it's right here. You don't know that the light is there until it hits something. But then when it hits something, it reflects. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. You don't light a candle and then hide it under a basket. You don't put up a lamp and then throw a cloth over it. Light is meant to be seen. And God's light can't be seen unless something, unless you get in the way you are the light of the world. And it's your job to shine. This year for Christmas, uh, we want us to engage in a spiritual practice that we're calling uh, light switch liturgy. If you're doing the offering, can you go to the back and grab the baskets? Um, basically what it is, is it's a few cards. And uh, one of them, by the way, is a... Uh, a reminder of all the things that are happening Christmas at Highland. Uh, coming up uh, this Wednesday is Bluegrass Christmas. You ought to check that out. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but it's got all of these little liturgies. Now, a liturgy is just like a worship order. It's, it's a prayer you can pray, a song you can sing. Um, but what we've done is we've included uh, some prayers for you. And now we'd like you to do this with your household. So if you have a family or roommates or whatever, we want you to do this together. We have, it's a light switch liturgy. So every morning when you turn the light on and every night when you turn the light off, what we'd like you to do is gather together and, and pray this prayer, say this together. It's a way that uh, in this busy time, in this busy season, that you can create space in your life to hear God speak to you. So go ahead and start passing those out if you're ready. Um, and what we want to do is every morning, do this with your kids, uh, do it with your family, or just do it by yourself. First thing you do, uh, share these prayers. We've written one for every morning and night, uh, four for each week. And so uh, you just do it and check it out and see what happens. Because Advent is, this, is, is a quiet experience. Advent doesn't scream at you. It doesn't yell, especially in a season where everything is trying to grab your attention. If you're not careful, you're going to lose sight of what Advent is. And it, Advent is kind of like Lent. I don't know if you've ever practiced Lent where you, you gave up something as you got ready for Easter in, in anticipation. Maybe you, you stopped doing certain habits or maybe you engaged in service or extra giving or something like that. Advent is a lot like Lent. Easter is always better for me when I've engaged in Lent. And Christmas is going to be way more meaningful for you and your family if you engage in Advent. 
as we get ready for the coming, as we experience the hope and the joy, the peace and the love as Christ comes, it will shape and change our hearts. So what I'd like you to do is, is take one per household, uh, take it uh, home with you and engage in that uh, this season. If you didn't get one because we skipped over you, uh, there's gonna be some in the information booth and you can grab one on the way out uh, today. Uh, would you please stand for our benediction? Our hope is frail, but it does not die. And so listen to the voice inside of you that says, Jesus. Listen to the voice inside of you that says, love. Because familiarity breeds affection, and the world can change on our affection. Be the light of the world. Be the presence of love and peace in someone else's life. May you be filled with the Spirit, and may you go in peace.